come back. It's been a little while. So I'd like on the one hand to recap a little bit. On the other hand, we do want to keep moving forward. So we'll see how we can balance that out. Firstly, what we always ask, what are we looking to achieve by the study of this Tanya class? Why are we coming here? We all live very busy lives and have many responsibilities and uh, have our day or week perhaps very cut out for us. We want to also grow and we want to change and we want to achieve. And these are all uh, um, questions that we often ask ourselves both in what we are doing if we're happy with what we're doing or how we could improve what we're doing, how we can change. And the Tanya very much addresses all of these uh, questions. Can we change? How can we change? Should we change? And what are we looking to achieve? In order to answer those questions, we need to really have a good um, perspective of life, of our own lives and of life at large. And that has been the journey of the Tanya. The journey of the Tanya has helped us get in touch with who we are, what we can achieve, and given us steps and inspiration to be able to achieve that. We've learned a lot. That's the journey of the Tanya. It's referred to as the long, short way, meaning that you go on a long route, but ultimately you feel like you're really getting places. It requires investment, firstly of time, and certainly of uh, um, commitment, even if it's just to learning. So just to summarize a few points. In the first eight chapters, the Tanya introduced us to our two souls. The godly soul that drives us to go beyond ourselves, connect with Hashem. And the animal soul that drives us to take care of ourselves in a more selfish way, to address our personal needs. We need both. We need both to be selfish and to be selfless. But the question is, what's the primary drive? Who's the director? And that was a discussion that began from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 14. And the discussion was that, yes, it's good to be selfish because if we weren't selfish, if we didn't take care of ourselves, then who would take care of ourselves? But is that the driving force behind what we do? And the challenge is to give leadership to the godly soul. And the godly soul will utilize even our personal selfish drives for a higher goal. It will direct us in the right direction. Chapter 15 describes how Hashem really values hard work. He values the fighter over the tzaddik. The tzaddik is already just a servant of God, but the Vedani is continuously fighting, meaning the tzaddik is somebody who is already in a space where the godly soul is in complete um, control over everything that he does. So yes, he also needs to eat and drink, but it's all only done in a way that benefits his um, 
mission in this world, which is to make a difference, to, 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 to touch the lives of others. He'll never just indulge. That's very hard to achieve, but for him, he's already in such a space that Sadiq made it. The Bainani is struggling. He's fighting. There's actually two types of Bainanis. We had the boring Bainani, but we don't have time to speak about it now, or elements of him. But the Bainani that we identified with was the person that really needs to put on a fight in order to give to in order really needs to put on a fight in order for his godly soul to take control. And he said it's very nice to want to be a fighter, but we actually need the tools. Anybody remember any of the tools that Tanya spoke about? Good. What else? Pardon? Prayer, absolutely. What else? The power of mind over the heart. Which means that a person needs to remember that as strong as he feels, as strong as, 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 as much as he desires something, his mind always has the ability to overpower that. But then a, a few chapters later, we gave a deeper insight. And we said it's not just that the mind has the ability to tug a war, overpower, and act against the heart, but actually the mind has the power to influence the heart in a positive way. And how so? We gave up all steps of study, reflect, feel, and do. This is in chapters 16 and 17, and this somewhat wrapped up a particular stretch of this journey. How did it wrap up a stretch of our journey? What was the opening line of the title page of the Tanya? The, the author ever said his objective is to do what? To get close to Hashem. Or more specifically, um, to explain how this matter is very near to you. How does the verse finish? In your mouth and in your heart to do it. Good. In your mouth and in your heart to do it. That was at the title page of the Tanya. The Tanya said that I'm here to show you how this is very much achievable. It's close to you, both in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the question is, it's very nice to say it's close to do it, but what about in your heart? To, in your heart is talking about developing an emotional relationship. It's a, to, to, to change feelings is something that is not so easy to achieve. But said the Tanya, when you take that four-step formula, study, reflect, feel, and then do, you will, by studying about Hashem and reflecting on that, develop some form of a feeling that will propel you to do. In other words, to have ecstatic feelings per se towards Hashem, like some song put it badly, in love with the one above, not necessarily will you uh, achieve that. But to have some form of a warm space, of an excitement, of a feeling towards Hashem, so enough of a feeling that will make you actually excited to go ahead and do a mitzvah, that is something that is very dear to you to do it. It's something that we very much can achieve. So this pretty much summed up the first 17 chapters. In chapter 16 or 17, the Altar spoke about two big principles. One principle is 
that any, anybody who has a brain in his head has the ability to develop some feeling in your heart. The other principle is, but the focus is to do it. So we all can develop feeling, but not uh, how much of a feeling, enough of a feeling to do it. And we said Hashem out of His kindness bridges the gap. And we have some form of a little feeling towards Hashem, and then we apply that to action, then Hashem considers that action as if it was filled with so much excitement. And we spoke a lot about that. Just pause for a moment. What we're speaking about here is, why should I? Why should I? Why should I? Why should I do a mitzvah? Okay, well, if I see the media benefits, if I see that the other person really uh, is touched and it's really making a difference to his life, then uh, it's obvious why I should. But we don't always see the benefits of a mitzvah. And so you ask yourself, why should I? And there's different ways of answering that question. And in, in other schools of thought, the focus would be on reward and punishment, as we spoke about. You should because you'll be rewarded, and you shouldn't because you'll be punished. But that's an exterior motivator. Hasidah says, why should you? Almost like the question already indicates that something needs to be addressed. It's not that you... The action shouldn't just be that you have to or else. It should be that I want to. And this is really what we're speaking about. When we learn about Hashem, when we reflect upon Him, then He becomes real. And now He becomes a, or she becomes a person, not personality, becomes a, uh, like a personality in our lives that we want to draw close to. And then I want to. So this is a true motivator for mitzvahs. Not that I should do it because, or because this is what will benefit me, or this is how I'll lose out, but I should do it because I want to get closer to him. Because I've learned about him, he's, he, he's attractive, and, uh, and I want to get to know him, I want to get closer to him. And how do I do that through his mitzvahs? So that's chapters 1 through 17. To spice things up a little bit, I have over here a little bit of a Hasidus lexicon. And maybe I'll put some words out over here and see if you've developed it, if you're familiar with it. So, uh, um, uh, firstly, who are the two souls? We're taking a little commercial break over here. We're doing some more interaction over here. What are the two souls? Pardon? Animal soul and the, and, and the godly soul. Is the animal soul the Yetzirah, the evil inclination? It's not. Very good. It's not evil. And this is the perspective that Hasidus has given us, that a deeper perspective, that rather than looking at just the two voices that say, do the right thing or do the wrong thing, it's getting in touch with two drives within us, and uh, neither of them are bad. It's rather, they're rather just how they, how they operate. What does Chabad mean? Very good. So Chabad is the three-step process we spoke about in chapter 3 of getting a good understanding and mental connection with a godly idea. First, Chachma, we need to be open to the idea, have that open-mindedness, to allow an idea that is non-worldly, that is greater than us, to, to, to enter into our minds. Chachma, the ability to ask what, realize is something that I don't understand, that is beyond my experience, and then better to understand it, to, to really 
ask questions and get a good understanding of it, and finally das to begin to connect with the idea. What are the garments of the soul? Mitzvahs. But we said that it, uh, all mitzvahs are divided into three categories. The, go- the soul manifests itself in three ways. Remember what they were? Three avenues of manifestation. I've just looked it up. Okay. Thought, speech, and action. Exactly. So bottom line, the way that we express ourselves is in one of three ways. Either through thinking a specific thought. We're talking about active thinking, not passive thinking. By saying a specific word and doing a specific talk. And we spoke in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. How uh, the clothes that we put on will t- could either be good ones or bad ones. We could, e- we could choose at any given moment what kinds of thoughts, what kind of words, or what kind of actions we are going to invest ourselves in. Okay. Kedusha. What does Kedusha mean? Or Kadosh? Holy. holy. What does holy mean? Kadosh. Now, what does holy mean? Connection. Separate. Yeah, Kedusha. Pardon? Yeah, so Kedusha means, yeah, above. Something that is separated, that is elevated above. I spoke about that in chapter 6. Bittel. What does Bittel mean? What did you say? Cancel. In modern Hebrew, it's to cancel. But the way we explained it according to Chassidus is where a person is able to um, surrender his personal agendas, to, 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 nullify, to not be caught in himself. The opposite of bitul is yeshus. Yeshus is when you're full of yourself. Bitul is that ability, that ability to um, go out of yourself, to not be caught in yourself. And this was a big term that we spoke about in chapter 6. It's quite a, nowadays, <clears throat> I guess it's a fine line between our drive is often confidence, instilling confidence in our kids and in ourselves, which could perhaps contradict surrendering one's personal agenda. No, I think that when you have real confidence, then you have an ability to let somebody else in. I think the lack of confidence often presents itself in the lack of being able to let someone else in. Uh, and conversely, when you have a deeper or higher connection, then that gives you greater confidence than when, you, when it's based on just your, your mortality. If your confidence is based on your personal intellect, then it's as good as the guy next to you didn't make you look like a fool. But if you know that you're bad and not just because you're intelligent, but because you have a special mission to achieve... Then, then, then you hold. Then that makes you stand strong and proud, despite what the guy next to you makes you look like, because because you, yeah, you're confident. You 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 plugged into something much greater than yourself. That was a discussion about bittel. Then we had Bach shalitalale, which means the mind ruling over the heart. We spoke about that a few minutes ago. We spoke about avoda, which is work. Which we spoke about specifically refers to the work of davening, the challenge of davening. We spoke a lot about that how that requires investment. We spoke about hispoinanus. Hispoinanus is to contemplate. That's kind of that second step. We said study, think, and then feel and then do. So that second step of think or, or reflect, study, reflect, and then feel and do. Reflection is really a time to stop and to 
to chew over in your mind again and again an idea until it begins to become more and more real in your life. Finally, we come to here in chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25, 18 through 25, the Ahava Musoteris, which means the hidden love. So this has been somewhat of a summary, but we still have a couple of minutes to move on to new territory. So the summary of chapters number 1 through 17 were that when we are able to apply our minds to study about Hashem, and then able to reflect upon that and develop a feeling within us, then that will make it close to us to be able to do it, to be able to do what we need to do. Now, obviously, that's just a summary. That's pretty much the conclusion of chapter 17. It doesn't address everything about the two souls and the battles and the struggles and the value of them and everything that we spoke about in between. But the point of the matter was that when we apply our minds to study about Hashem, then we have a relationship and then that gives us the motivation to do. Chapter 18 through, ch- chapters 18 through 25 ask, what about the person that does not have the mental capacity to study about Hashem? To develop a feeling. How does he come close to Hashem? Are you going to just try to uh, um, uh, entice him with candies or rewards or punishments? That definitely is not something that... Uh, in our interests, it's not our, down our alley of, 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 the, of the Hasidic approach. So the Tanya introduces in chapter 18, the hidden love that exists within the hearts of every Jew. Where does the love come from? So in chapters 18 and 19, we spoke about the nature of this love. And that was what we spoke about last in our most recent classes. And in today's chapters, chapters 20 and 21, we speak about how to reveal that love. So let's break that down. Let's go back a step. What is the nature of the love, firstly? And then let's talk about how do we reveal it. So we said that it's a natural inheritance. It's part of our DNA. Where does it come from? There's a part of our neshama that sees Hashem. And since this neshama has that level of chachma, that window that has the light of Hashem shining within it, since that is part of its consciousness, so therefore, it is attracted to Hashem. So this isn't a logical love that we spoke about in the previous chapters that is developed through studying about Hashem. You say, wow, Hashem is totally awesome. I want to, I want to, I'm attracted. I want to get to know Him. I want to be closer to Him. Rather, this is a love that is in our consciousness as a result of a part of our Neshama seeing Hashem, which is specifically referred to as Chachma, that window, that, that part of the neshama that allows or sees the light of Hashem shining into it. So this is not a logical love. It actually makes it more powerful than a logical love. Because when a love is based on logic, then when the logic goes away, then the love is gone. Rather, this is a love that comes from the fact that the neshama sees Hashem. It, it's beyond logic. It's just like if you see something, somebody could argue from today till tomorrow, if you saw somebody... And you know it was them. Somebody could argue from today till tomorrow that it can't be they're not in the country. But if you saw them, then you saw them. You know that they're there. And the Neshama sees Hashem. And so somebody could debate and argue from day till t- today till tomorrow. Does God exist? Doesn't God exist? But since our Neshama sees Hashem, the Neshama, for the Neshama, this is a reality. This is, this is something that is not... You, know, you could debate it, but that's not going to uh, weaken the Neshama's 
um, connection to Hashem because he sees Hashem. And this part of the Neshava naturally loves Hashem. And so strong is his love for, for, for Hashem that, as we described, like a flame that flickers to its source, even if it gets extinguished, the Neshava wants to become close to Hashem, even if it will lose its personal identity. What does this mean in practical terms? It means that a person is willing to um, sacrifice their comforts and, uh, or even essentials just because of their desire to be close to Hashem. Now, not always does this level of Chachma, this part of the Neshama, shine within us. Sometimes we become self-consumed. And when we do become self-consumed, then we forget about the Neshama's viewpoint. We just see things from a humanistic, day-to-day life, corporal perspective, and we forget about the fact that our Neshama continuously sees Hashem and loves Hashem and wants to be close to Hashem. And the more, it's a little bit of a, what do you call it? Slippery slope. The more that we become self-consumed, the more we engage in activities that obscure us from seeing the Neshama's perspective. So, uh, it is a little bit of a slippery slope because we get more caught up in day-to-day requirements and then forget about our religious, not just responsibilities, but our religious dimension, the part of us, that part of the Shabbat that wants to be close to Hashem. And, and the less we fuel it, the less we uh, um, uh, give it what it needs, then it has less oxygen to breathe, it has less ability to grow. But it always remains there. And I'll come back. Give me just a moment and I'll come back to you. Um, but, says the Tanya, even the most mundane or whatever word you want to give, secular or a disinterested Jew, at a certain moment, at a decisive moment, at a moment where that person is asked, will you cut ties with your Judaism or with the Jewish people, such a person will be willing to literally rather die they give up his connection to God and, and the Jewish people. So what happened? What changed? A moment ago, he was doing everything that undermines his God and his Jewish people. A moment later, he's willing to even die, like give up everything, lose all of his fortunes, rather than undermine his relationship with Hashem. So what happened? Like something drastic changed in this person. So the Tanya explains that at the moment that there's something that clearly is an act that separates him and disconnects him from Hashem, then this love, this hidden love, is suddenly uh, evoked. And once that love is present, then he's, he's as committed and, and, and dedicated as the most uh, spiritual of people or the most uh, connected of people. So... And then the next moment, he'll go back and he'll continue to do perhaps every sin in the book. So, hello, like a moment ago, we heard the way you spoke. You were on fire. And now suddenly you couldn't care less. What just happened? So what happened was, for a moment, kind of that little head poked his head out of the window and said, like, I'm here, that, that level of the shab that wants to be one with Hashem, like, uh, don't, don't, don't hurt me, don't get in my way. 
But then the next moment, he kind of was able to forget about it or convince himself that what he's doing does not undermine his relationship with Hashem. Maybe like what people often say, I'm a Jew at heart, which obviously has tremendous positive meaning. The Baal Shem Tov, the final Chassidah says, Rachman Alibabai, Hashem wants the heart. But sometimes it becomes somewhat of a, a justification that as long as I still believe in, 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 in uh, I'm a Jew, then whatever else, whatever else I do does not matter. But the truth of the matter is everything that we do does cause us to become less um, uh, um, sensitive to the godly reality or every act of sin. Conversely, every mitzvah does allow that reality, the godly reality to become more apparent and more of a good driving force in our life. So just to sum it up, and this is before chapters 20 and 21, so maybe we'll still get to it, and then I want to definitely address the questions. Um, Tanya chapter 18 introduces the hidden love that exists within every Jew, no matter how religious or how secular. It's the exact same love. It's the exact same desire to become close to Hashem. The only difference is, is it revealed or is it hidden? And at certain extreme moments, this love is revealed. But the challenge would be how we could reveal this hidden love that we all have on a day-to-day basis. So that could also be a... uh, motivator um, of, that, that will encourage us to, to do the right thing and to grow in our, in our Yiddish character, to do more mitzvahs and to help people. Yes, Maxine. I think it's more important that you carry on. Uh, I, I, my, my summary on what you said about this hidden love and your whole argument about this hidden love would be argued enormously by people who don't come from the same thinking. And the reason why I bring this up because it's like children who are facing anti-Semitism, if they go along with your story, they're going to end up with no story because it presumes that everybody, that there is a hidden love between, everybody seeks this hidden love between God and man. I'm just, I was just thinking to myself about young people who are arguing against the that everyone wants to be close to God. They will find themselves in your argument as you climb the tree of your thinking um, without anything. Not everyone follows that train of thought. So while I hear it and, and I, you know, I mean, that feels right for me. I, can't, I, I don't know if everybody, had the, if, if there's a hidden love that's waiting to be revealed between all men and all people and God. What's the danger? You're describing how children could get themselves into trouble. The danger is they won't have an argument why this way. The danger is they'll find themselves without words. The danger is that they won't they won't be able to they won't be able to explain it. Okay. And then they themselves might question whether actually there is a hidden love and whether they should pursue the same path. But this is an academic conversation. No, I think these are very good questions. It's very nice to say that we have a hidden love, but are you able to substantiate that? Are you able to prove that? That's a good question. To go back a step, we have the arguments and then we have our beliefs. So we discussed a couple of weeks ago 
belief in God and the knowledge of God. And we spoke about how these are two different ways of addressing God. There's addressing God or relating to God on a level of belief and there's relating to God on a level of understanding. And both are essential and each have their advantages. And the lack of either of the two puts us in danger. If a person just says, I believe in God, but I can't explain, I can't, can't, I can't really explain how he exists or what he is. I'm not quite sure. Maybe, he's, maybe if you take a, a rocket into the moon, then maybe you'll find him there. There must be a God. But I think maybe I'm going to speak to the next guy going to the next NASA. I'm going to speak to them. I'd love to get a picture of him. So, I mean, he's very nice that he believes in God, but his lack of understanding of Hashem is, is very much inhibiting and undermining his belief because that's actually not what God is. God isn't something that a NASA exposition is going to take a picture of on moon. It's a, if that's the person's perspective, then he actually doesn't believe in God. He believes in some NASA, you know, uh, I don't know, what do they call it? Um, thinking of like that, um, uh, creative thinking of stuff that might or might not ever exist. But... Um, so, or you could have a really intellectual conversation with somebody and debate it. And, there's, and many have. And the, there's a book called the Kuzari. The Kuzari was written many hundreds of years ago where the author describes a debate. I, I encourage you to read it. He describes a, a debate between the believer and the, and, the, and the atheist and how they debated out God. And it's a very intellectual, stimulating argument. Um, so we need to understand, we can't just believe. But the flip side is that when we just base it on understanding, then every argument, every intellectual argument has a counter-argument. And there's that belief that when you're able to believe in something, then that motivates you, it gives you that vision and that motivation to seek understanding. And practically speaking, what that means is that when we're able to look at another Jew and say that I know that he also has a love for Hashem, that it makes me believe in him, and without saying anything, then when we sit down for coffee and we have a discussion about life, there's already a certain unspoken undertone that becomes a game changer in the nature of our conversation. So it can't end with just that there is a hidden love. And we're really only introducing this in chapter 18 of the Tanya, interestingly. You know, after many months of study, we could have just, we don't need to learn Tanya, just know every Jew has a natural love for Hashem and uh, that's where it starts and that's where it ends. But obviously that's not good enough. We need to study and we need to understand and we need to develop. But that said, we need to also be, uh, have that belief, to, to have that awareness, that awareness that we actually do have a love for Hashem. So maybe that could... Uh, of great benefit for us. So how do we reveal this love in in, in seven minutes (laughs) on a day-to-day basis? Do we have seven minutes? Quarter two, 22? Yeah, okay. So how do we reveal this love? Chapters 20 and 21 speak about a fundamental mitzvah, which is understanding that there is one God. When the Jewish people stood at the foot of the mountain ready to receive the Torah and uh, God came down to the mountain and he said, 
you took you out of Egypt's first commandment and the next commandment. Don't have any other gods. It was too much for them to handle. Their, their souls expired. To be able to hear from God himself, the voice of God, they couldn't handle it. And they came running to Moshe. They said, Moshe, please, you take over. You, you have a lot of, you can handle him. You speak to God all the time. Let him tell you the rest of the commandments and you share it with us. And that's what happened. And Moshe was actually very uh, disappointed. He became weak out of disappointment that he would have loved the Jewish people to have persevered and wanted to have heard all ten commandments from Hashem himself. The fact that they couldn't handle it and they had to settle for less was disappointing for Moshe. But, says Hasidus, within those first two commandments, everything was encapsulated. Those first two commandments that I am Hashem your God and you should have no other God, um, really include within them all of the, not just 10 commandments, but all of the 613 mitzvahs. Meaning that understanding that there is one God and that there is no other God lies at the core of every mitzvah that we do. In our very first intro here, we spoke from chapter 32 about... uh, how loving a fellow Jew is at the core of every mitzvah that we do. And that's also true. But here in chapters 20-21, the Hasidah speaks about how understanding how there is one God, that is really a fundamental um, understanding that lies at the core of every mitzvah. And later, in, in, in a few chapters to come, when we wrap up this idea, the Tanya is going to explain how belief in one God brings us to do all of the positive mitzvahs, and believing that there's no other God keeps us away from doing, uh, from sinning. So what does it mean to believe in God? The conventional understanding of believing, sorry, not believing in God, believing in one God. It's two separate mitzvahs. It's one mitzvah to know that there's a God, and it's another mitzvah to know that there's one God. And another mitzvah to know that there's no other God. So positive, negative, those kind of go together. What does it mean that there is only one God? Okay, let's open it up. What does it mean that there's only one God? God. Meaning? Mm-hmm. Only one what? Um, only one way to connect to... Okay. So that's possible. What does it mean? Only one God. What do you say? There is nothing else. Yeah, there's nothing else. It doesn't say there's only one... There is only one thing. It says there's only one God. It doesn't mean there's nothing only else. Only one creator. Well, only one creator. Okay. What do you say, Kamala? Only one creator. It's Pardon? It's so that's speaking about Hashem's greatness. But that is only one? What does omnipotent mean? <laughs> all, no one else yeah, all encompassing. Yeah. Higher than the... So the conventional understanding <laughs> of believing in one God was that there is only one power in this world. <clears throat> While other religions believe that there are different sources of power, you pray to the sun and you'll get that from him, and you'll pray to somebody else and you'll get from him, and basically go to all of the different superpowers, spiritual powers of the world, and you'll get what you need, which was um, definitely very much um, present in pagan uh, um, religions. or even in, not as so far as pagan religions, there's still, even in, in Christianity, apparently, there's 
a perspective there, there's God and there's the devil, and these are two separate powers. Not so, says Judaism. Judaism says that there is only one source of life. There is only one source of everything. And that is God. So Hashem is the Satan and Hashem is Hashem. Absolutely, exactly. The Satan is just one of Hashem's workers. And Hashem created him and he has his function, but ultimately everything comes from God. Free choice, yes, the big question. And we're going to leave that for right now. <laughs> Hasidus takes a deeper look. And Hasidus says that Belief in one God doesn't only mean that there's one creator or one controller. It means that there is is really only one reality. And that's, I think, the first thing that we heard. uh, You mentioned that originally. Um, And that's very much a Hasidic concept. Hasidus explains that the only thing that really exists is God. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that I don't exist, that you don't exist, that this room doesn't exist? Does it mean that millions of creatures around the earth don't exist? About billions of people and perspectives and insights, do they all not exist? If we say all that exists is God, not at all. They also exist. You're saying everything is God then? There is nothing else Everything is God. That's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is that everything else is so insignificant before Hashem that it says, if it doesn't exist. And Tulti says that it matters, which is another important point. Once Hashem says it matters, that it really matters. But until Hashem says, says uh, something matters, it's completely insignificant. This is something we'll have to speak about more next week, please God. We're going to give interesting analogies of flies and words of uh, what it means that this big big world is completely insignificant before Hashem. We are certainly not coming to, this is not cancel culture, we're not coming to say that the world doesn't matter. The world has a a role to play. And I remember um, in uh, in Shiva, at some point I had a way that I coined it that I liked, and that was that um, the world exists, but not the way we think it does. So if the question, sorry, I used to ask, does the world exist or doesn't the world exist? Well, it does and it doesn't. It doesn't exist the way we think it does, but it still does exist. So uh, um, uh, that's beautiful thoughts about whether God exists or not. Let's see if we could just throw in a story. Um, uh, pardon? We also exist. <laughs> that also is a story. But uh, to wrap it up, um, uh, so... As a young child, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Baharash, was very good at, he was, he, at sculpturing. He would sculpture things out of wood, make things out of wood. Quite interesting. And he had, this, he had his sculpture pen. He was only five. And the Chassid said to him, if you tell me where God is, I'll give you my uh, crafting pen. Not sure exactly what it's called in English. I was reading the story in Hebrew. And uh, this five-year-old boy responded to the Chassid, if you tell me where God isn't, I'll give you my pen. And with that, he won the other guy's pen. Thanks so much for joining. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you.